strongly as being satanic. All the stuff he's doing, that's just the power of Satan working in him. Wrong words, Pharisees. The switch we noticed last week was that as a result of their unbelief, Jesus now began to teach in parables. These parables were were stories that Jesus gave that carried with them a spiritual punch. To those on the inside, those whom Jesus graciously brought near to him, the parables taught clearly about God and how we might know him and love him and follow him and be with him. But to those on the outside, the unbelievers, those who didn't want to know Jesus, well, the, the parables were foggy, unclear. Uh, They didn't make sense. In fact, they seemed to be used by God to actually have a hardening effect upon those who didn't want to believe. Much like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. The more he hardened his heart, the more God used that hardening to harden his heart more. It's the truth we need to remember, though, isn't it? Unbelief, hardening our hearts, isn't this kind of neutral place where we're just waiting looking for more evidence. Jesus repeatedly identifies unbelief actually as a sin. The Bible classifies unbelief as a distortion of faith. Did you know that? That not believing in Jesus is a sin? And so when people say, I I believe, I'd like to believe if I had more evidence, the Bible says, who are you, O man, to put God in the judgment seat? God has displayed his wondrous glory all over so that all men are without excuse. And in Jesus' own ministry, he taught the truth with boldness. He healed the sick. He, he, He made the blind to see. He cast out demons powerfully. The right response, the only response really, was full submission. Bowing down at the feet of Jesus in unfaltering faith. This is why Jesus will later in his ministry tell the Pharisees to repent of their sin of unbelief. This is why the gospel is not just a mere offer, but it's a command. Repent and believe, not, oh, won't you consider it? Jesus commands this. The parables we looked at last week described the way in which the word, the gospel command, when it falls upon hearts who readily accept its truth, this word, this gospel brings about real faith. It produces fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. This morning in the passage that we just read, we see Jesus performing miracles that I think literally unpack the parables that we looked at last week. That is, these aren't just miracles that Jesus happens to perform randomly. They're miracles that he purposely does in order to teach something about himself and to teach us about ourselves. There's a commonality between these two miracles. Both seem to be dealing with turmoil, right? The turmoil of the awesome storm that threatens to drown the boats. And and then there's the turmoil of this awful demon possession, which seems to have brought this one man almost to the brink of death. There's also the responses, which are similar in each miracle. After Jesus calms the storm, the disciples respond in fear. And then after Jesus heals the demoniac, the townspeople also respond in fear. It seems then that Mark, the gospel writer, has placed these two accounts together to teach us about Jesus. I think we actually see a lot about Jesus, and we'll unpack that. But we also see a lot about ourselves. 
So what's the first thing we see? Well, I think the first thing that we see about Jesus is that he is captain. I mean that in the sense that it's Jesus who is driving this whole situation. Right? Look at verse 35. Who got them into this whole mess in the first place? It was Jesus. He said to them, let us go across to the other side. Do you think Jesus knew about the storm that was coming? Yes, he's God. Do you think he knew that the storm was going to threaten to drown the boat? Absolutely, he's omniscient God. Did the, the storm take Jesus by surprise? No, he's God. And yet we see also something, I think, really amazing in this section about Jesus, our sovereign, omniscient captain who knew what he was leading his disciples into. Where is Jesus while they're out at sea? What's he, what's he doing there? Look at verse 36. Verse 36 says that the disciples took Jesus with them just as he was. What an interesting phrase. Why did Mark use that phrase, just as he was? I think he unpacks that in the next couple of verses. Verse 38 Where was Jesus just as he was? Sleeping through the rough and tumble of this impressive storm. Here's a picture of our captain, our sovereign divine savior, who is tired. He's worn out after all the long and very tough ministry he's been doing through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Preaching sermon after sermon to huge crowds pressing in upon him healing the sick, engaging in tough spiritual warfare against demons. He's exhausted. Does that surprise you to hear that about Jesus? We need this reminder there, don't we? That Jesus, who is the Son of God, himself fully divine, who became for us and for our salvation fully human. He became weak in order to save the weak. He became poor and tired in order to rescue the poor and tired. You know what? He even died in order to rescue those who have died. This is the Jesus we worship. The Jesus who, as the author of Hebrews puts it, is able to fully sympathize with our every weakness, who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, and yet he was and is without sin. Hebrews then tells us to say we should draw near to him with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. So here's Jesus, sleeping on a boat through what seems like Hurricane Sandy, and the disciples, in fearful turmoil, wake him up. Verse 38. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Why might this question be the worst question to ever ask Jesus? Simply because the fact that He is there, sleeping on the boat with them. And he shows that he cares for them by being there. Remember? He's God. He left the glories of heaven. He left perfect fellowship with his Father out of love and care for them. God, Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? Answer, have I not become a man to come here and die for you in service and love for you? Yes, I care that you're perishing. Oh, and by the way, no, the storm is not going to be the end of you. Look at verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. 
And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. What a striking contrast we see here in just a couple verses. First, Jesus, the Son of Man, is exhausted, sleeping in the boat. He needs to get some shut-eye. And now Jesus, the Son of God, is up and speaking as God in all creation, submits to his perfect command. He speaks, and the storm subsides. We see here a few things that I think Mark is trying to showcase. First, Jesus is God. All creation submits willingly to his most perfect and awesome command. There's not one gust of wind outside of his control. Not one drop of rain that falls outside of where Jesus wants that raindrop to fall. All existence is under the direct rule of our creator. And here he is, Jesus, in the boat with his disciples. God is with them. Emmanuel, God with us. That's profound. Secondly, I think we see something of what this means. Perhaps you've heard this passage preached before, and and the application was, as it often is given a lot of times, Jesus called the storm, So Jesus can calm the storms in your life too. Won't you let Jesus calm your storm? That's an entirely wrong application from this passage. It's true. Yes, Jesus does calm the storms in our lives. We want to uphold that. We get that from other passages in scriptures. But that's not at all what's going on here. First, as we already saw, it was Jesus who led the disciples into this very storm. Secondly, look at how they respond in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, they saw perhaps for the first time who it really was they were with. God. And were they calm? No. Were their hearts at peace? No. They were filled with great fear. The storm and the sky ceased, which led to an even stronger storm now brewing in their hearts. Precisely because they saw the one who was mightier, more powerful, more awesome, more awful than the mightiest hurricanes that will ever ravage this earth. Friends, coming to Jesus isn't always this peaceful and serene experience. In fact, Outside of the covenantal grace and love of God, approaching Jesus ought to be the most terrifying experience in existence. Outside of the grace and saving love of God, Jesus isn't safe. Friends, if you're here this morning as someone who has not found safety in Jesus as your covenantal Savior, then there will come a day when you will see him as your eternal judge. And then there will be no safety, no place to hide. He holds the universe in his hands. Friends, we worship a terrifying Savior. Now, in one sense, this this fear which the disciples experienced was right. While in the presence of God, fear is a worthy and appropriate response. And the rightness of that response, in part, is immediately recognizing your own unworthiness and the inappropriateness of being in the presence of God. As sinful men and women... And being God's presence, we have no business being there. No right, no safety. In fact, we deserve nothing but God's judgment. And his holiness demands it upon us. Fear is the right response. But in another sense, fear is also 
entirely wrong. We see that in verse 40, don't we? He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See? In this regard, we see fear is the exact opposite of faith. And what Jesus is doing in this rebuke is saying, look, if you know who I really am and what I've ultimately come to do, namely give my life as a ransom to save you and present you as righteous before the Father, if you knew that and believed that about me, you would not fear. No, in fact, you'd find shelter in me. You'd find safety in me. To whom else could you turn to find safety before God but God himself? The irony then is that even though Jesus ought to elicit nothing but great fear in us, because he has come for us and for our salvation, because he has come to ultimately not let us perish, we must go to him. We must draw near to him to alleviate all fear. The irony is that his being demands our fear, but it's also only in him who relieves all fears. As John Newton has put it so perfectly, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? So Jesus asks us even now, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Go to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. He came that you would not perish. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. I can only speculate here. I can imagine that the rest of that boat trip across the sea, though calm, peaceful in terms of the weather, the atmosphere within the boat was anything but. Probably really tense. Exhilarating, maybe. Certainly fearful, as they perhaps in silence looked at Jesus in a new light. And imagine all the eyes kind of being glued on him. Who is he? That's not a bad thing either, is it? Maybe that's what Jesus intended in leading them into the storm in the first place. All eyes being glued on him. Well, they get to the other side. We're told that the excitement did not stop. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a scene. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Might be able to translate that. What do you want, Jesus? What do you want? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Here is an absolutely dramatic scene. But it is along with what we just looked at in Jesus calming the storm. I think one of the most impressive scenes we have of Jesus. Jesus has absolute power over creation and nature, yes. But we see here Jesus having absolute power over dark spiritual forces who make it their business to fight against and buck up against the power of Jesus. They seek and want to wreak havoc and cause disarray. They want to reject the rule of Jesus. And yet, here we see 
Jesus wins. He rules and subdues with perfect power. We need to briefly make a point concerning this because I think in our modern scientific ignorance, we have blurred the lines. You see, in the Bible, the lines are actually never blurred. There's always a clear distinction between those suffering under demonic power and then those who suffer from physical sickness and disease. In the Bible, these two are not the same. Many of us today have tried to explain away the demons we see here in Scripture as just kind of like a euphemism for disease or psychological disease. Oh, they they had no real science back then in those days, so of course everything was due to demons. That's actually not the case. You look in the very next passage, which we're going to look at next week, it's clear that the people whom Jesus heals there are physically sick. And Mark doesn't say, oh, they were possessed by demons. They're just sick. The lines weren't blurred for the biblical writers. They didn't actually attribute every disease to demons. And so the man we see here isn't physically sick. He's possessed. And it's described like that, isn't it? He's not sick. He's not weak. No, he had this this inhuman strength. Breaking chains, unable to be contained by many men. And he engages in this dehumanizing activity, cutting and disfiguring himself, living alone among the dead. It's there among the tombs where he lives alienated from his family, from his community, alienated from all good human society. But he's not alone, is he? No. Not that he was just surrounded by demons. Verse 2 said, he had within him an unclean spirit. And perhaps, uh, in fact, perhaps most frighteningly, he was possessed by at most 6,000 demons. A legion was a battalion of soldiers in the Roman army, up to 6,000 men in one legion. So here we see most likely 6,000 unclean spirits all wreaking havoc within this man. The irony is that though he was free from any restraint, unable to be bound by any chains, he was in complete bondage to this legion of inhuman, dark activity. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Only imagine what that answer sounded like in person. I don't ever want to hear that answer actually in person, because I'm sure if I hear that, the hair on the back of my neck would stand on end. Perhaps it was the intention of Satan himself to send this legion in order to fight against and frighten away Jesus himself. The military nature of his name suggests as much. In almost every other instance of demonic activity described in Scripture, it's always one demon possessing one person. And so it should at least strike us as significant that here, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see such an extreme example. A military legion, a battalion, ready for the fight. Of course, we should expect this. Because ever since Genesis 3, which Keith read earlier, we see this this warfare taking place, a vicious enmity between the serpent Satan and the coming son of Eve, the Messiah who will come to crush the head of the serpent. Satan knows that passage well in Genesis 3.15. 
And so right here we see the prince of darkness probably sending 6,000 of his generals to try and stop this coming king. And Mark is showing us here a Jesus not so meek and mild. Now here's a king Jesus who is victorious. Here's a warrior Jesus who in one fell swoop can banish and conquer over an entire legion of Satan's forces. We see that these demons recognize this too, don't we? They immediately cry out to Jesus in verse 10, begging him, don't send us away. And so seeing a great herd of pigs off in the hill, Jesus grants them permission to go into the pigs, which in the end is their demise as the possessed pigs rush off the cliff into the water. We need to note here that throughout Scripture, demon activity, no demon, not even Satan himself, can do anything outside the will of God's allowing it. We see this especially in the book of Job, right? Where Satan can only harm righteous Job according to what God allows. This should give us a great calm, I think, in a world that is literally fraught with spiritual warfare. I mean, if, if God gave us right now the spiritual eyes to, to see all the activity going on between the forces of evil and the forces of good, we tremble. Our pants would soak. We can be confident in a good and sovereign God who promises to work out all things for the good of those whom he loves, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your king watches over you. Even Satan himself is on a chain and leash. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, his spirit actually indwells you now so that no evil spirit can actually even possess you. They fight and war around you. But in Christ, you're safe. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, trusting in him as your Lord and King, well then spiritual bondage is actually the existence you live in. You may not know it. You may not necessarily even be possessed by demons, though I don't doubt that people today actually are. But scripture actually describes all unbelievers as being slaves to sin and held under the sway and rule of Satan himself, blinded by him to follow in his steps. When he says jump, the unbeliever jumps. Listen to Paul describe to the Ephesians what they were like before they became to believe in Jesus. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and following the power of the prince of the air, Satan, who is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see? You may not be imprisoned under the bondage of 6,000 demons, but all unbelievers are imprisoned by Satan under the bondage of their own sinful desires, unable to break the bonds of our sinful cravings, whatever they may be. And here in Mark, we see the only victor, the only redeemer who can break that bondage. Only Jesus can free us from this satanic bondage that we've all been born into. Only Jesus can rescue and redeem slaves. We sang it earlier, didn't we? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke 
the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what we are as Christians. Freed to follow our new king. No longer enslaved to that old master, the devil. That's what happened to this man in chapter 5. He was absolutely freed. In fact, after Jesus drove the demons out, the townspeople come to see what happened. And what do they see? Verse 15, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. What a wonderful sight that must have been. It's as if the sun had started to finally shine for the first time on this little hillside graveyard. For the first time in years, maybe decades, this man was experiencing life as God intended men to experience and enjoy life, sitting at the side of Jesus in his right mind. Perhaps the greatest irony of all is what we see at the very end of verse 15. The townspeople, the people who had lived near and alongside this frighteningly demon-possessed man, were now afraid. So afraid, in fact, that in verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now just just compare that statement in verse 17 with the statement the demons made back in verse 10. There the demons begged Jesus not to send them out of the region. Here the townspeople begged Jesus to leave the region. Who really was in spiritual bondage here? Perhaps the most frightening statement of all comes at the beginning of verse 18. As he was getting into the boat. You see that? Jesus said, okay. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I'll say it till the day I die. The worst judgment God could ever inflict upon man is to give him up to his own exalted free will. You want me to leave? Okay. And so Jesus goes to get into the boat. But of course, that's not how the account ends, is it? Look at the rest of verse 18. The man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. Of course he did. Out of all the characters in these two accounts, here's the one man who responds with beautiful, fearless faith. He, he longs to now be with Jesus, to follow him, to go where his captain goes. I wonder where you see yourself this morning. When you hear of Jesus, when, when you see the changes Jesus brings when he enters into your world, into the, to the lives of others around you, is your gut response, I need you, Jesus. Let me leave everything and follow you? Or is your response, leave me, Jesus. I want what I have now. Don't change things so much. Don't shake up my world too much. You're too radical. You're too extreme. If you're the latter, please be careful. Jesus might give you what you want. How does Jesus answer the healed man? Well, in his wonderful grace, Jesus says, no. And I suspect Jesus gave what I think was the warmest no with the most comforting smiles he could ever give. He says, no, no. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
Are you not immediately reminded of Paul's wonderful words in the first chapter of Philippians? There where Paul says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in this flesh, yes, that's fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, says Paul. But to remain here in the flesh, that's more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, says Paul, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And that's what Jesus is saying to this man. Oh, your desire to be with me, it's right. It's good. And yes, it's what you were created for. But I have something more important for you right now. Be a witness to your countrymen concerning me. Tell them about me. Tell them what I did for you. Tell them what I can do for them. Friends, have you ever wondered why the Lord tarries in keeping you here? think we'd all agree it'd be far better to be in glory in heaven with our Lord right now. So why? The reason is love. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves the broken. Jesus loves the world that is now in bondage. And so we're called to love them too and to stay here and work and to tell the world about our Savior going to all the nations and declaring the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He saves, he saves, repent and believe. Fly to him, flee to him, for Jesus has come to save. That's what we're to do. And that's exactly what this man did. With joy, I'm sure, look at verse 20. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Perhaps this man knew something of John Newton's hymn which motivated him to minister with joy while separated from his Savior. He could stay in obedient joy, evangelizing to a city who actually didn't want Jesus to be among them because he knew a day was coming when he would have Christ forevermore, enjoying Christ fully in perfect fellowship. Perhaps that man left Jesus that day singing what we ourselves so often sing, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. Jesus will have us. While we wait here, let us with joy proclaim the gospel that he has perfected for us. Let's pray. Great Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that we have not always responded to Christ the way we should. Father, like the disciples in this story on the boat, Father, we see your power displayed and we shrink back because we can't understand it. Our minds cannot wrap around the magnificence and the infinite nature of your power. Father, or like the townspeople, Father, we see the power that you have over the forces of Satan himself.
and we don't understand. Father, we see how you work in our lives, and it hurts sometimes, Father. You take us on a journey that we don't understand, Father, that hurts. You bring trials into our lives, Father, and instead of responding in faith, we respond in fear. Father, because we don't know well enough who Jesus is. Father, we don't trust your good heart and your love towards us. Father, we get caught in our own pain, concerned with our own welfare. Father, and we fail to see the Savior who going before stepped onto the cross for us. We don't think of his pain. Father, the weight of sin on his shoulders and your wrath bearing down from heaven. Father, we don't remember that. Forgive us of this. And Father, in the moments in our lives where you take us to the pain, and the trial. Father, drive us to Christ to respond to him in faith, knowing that you love us, that you care for us. Father, and seeing the glory of Christ, the king of the universe, Father, who has the power to calm the sea, who has the power to drive out demons, a legion of them, Father, help us to see Christ as glorious, to see Christ as good and faithful. We thank you, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand and open your hymnal to hymn 104 as we sing Amazing Grace.